The second lesson, which is also the sermon text from the first chapter of St. John's Revelation, verses 4 to 18. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is coming, and from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his own blood and made us a kingdom and priests to God his Father, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him, and all the nations of the earth will mourn because of him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and who was and who is coming, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingship and patient endurance in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony about Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write what you see on a scroll and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like a son of man. He was clothed with a robe that reached to his feet, and around his chest he wore a gold sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool or like snow. His eyes were like blazing flames. His feet were like polished bronze being refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. He held seven stars in his right hand. A sharp two-edged sword was coming out of his mouth. His face was shining as the sun shines in all its brightness. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. And see, I am alive forever and ever. I also hold the keys of death and hell. The word of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. It was the little boy's first time going out to trick-or-treat, and his father led him out that night through the neighborhood to get the candy, and his dad decided to play along too. He dressed up in a costume, complete with a mask. And that was very challenging for the little boy because... Up to that point in his short life, he had never seen his loving father any other way but face to face. So, of course, his, his loving dad reassured him and comforted him. Hey, it's still me behind the mask. It's all just for fun, son. It's all just a game. And the little boy understood, but even still, various points throughout the night, he asked his dad to pull the mask down so he could again see his father for who he really was. Lutherans like to use the phrase, the masks of God. And they use that term in a number of different ways. One way is this, that when God comes to his people today, he wears masks. He hides himself behind the pages of a book, water in a font. He hides himself underneath bread and wine on an altar. 
Now, when God comes to us in word and sacrament, some things are not masked at all. Like his grace, his undeserved love for us, that is still right out there in the open. It's on full display for everybody to see in the word and sacraments. But what God does hide when he comes to us that way, what he does mask is his glory. He masks his glory. He hides it from us when he comes to us in word and sacrament. And he does that because he loves us. We are sinful human beings. We cannot stand in the presence of the glory of a perfectly righteous God. If we did, we would just be vaporized. We'd be dematerialized instantly. So God hides himself behind the Bible and the waters of baptism and the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. At the beginning of St. John's Revelation, you get an idea of what would happen if God came to us with his glory on display because St. John sees a vision and he's not seeing anything close to the full glory of Jesus Christ. It's like Jesus is just pulling down the mask an inch or two. He's just revealing a little bit of his divine glory. And still, this is what happens. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. See, even this very limited glory of Jesus Christ, just a little glimpse in this vision is enough to knock St. John flat. Imagine what would happen if God came with his full glory on display. John says that he has this vision when he is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. John has a vision where Jesus pulls down the mask just a little bit and allows St. John to see him as he really is, as he is now. Alive, glorious, and reigning over all things, even over death and hell. And on this Lord's Day, which is Sunday, the Holy Spirit is going to show us Jesus the same way. Now, Jesus is still going to be wearing his mask. We're not going to get to see the vision that St. John saw with our own two eyes. We're certainly not going to see the full glory of God on display. But by the words of the Spirit, we are going to also see Jesus as he is in this vision. Alive, glorious, and reigning over all of our enemies, even death and hell. And sometimes to get the most out of a thing, it's... It's actually helpful to start at the end. And I think that is the case in this vision. You get the most out of it if you go to the end first. Where Jesus says, I was dead and see I am alive forever and ever. I also hold the keys of death and hell. Jesus was dead. And St. John tells us why Jesus died. It is because he loves us and freed us from our sins by his own blood. Because Jesus loved us, he, he shed his blood on the cross and freed us from the curse and the punishment of our sin. But after Jesus did that, he rose from the dead, and to prove it, he spent 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, showing himself as he was, alive and victorious over death, to his disciples and to many other followers. And Jesus appeared to them in many different ways over the course of all those days, because Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead is essential to the Christian faith. Without Jesus' resurrection, there really is no meaningful Christianity. For one thing, Jesus says he is the Son of God and then predicts that he will rise from the dead. Well, if he pulls that off, if he actually rises from the dead, that proves that he is who he says he is. On the other hand, if he doesn't rise from the dead, that proves that he is a liar and he cannot be the Son of God. 
The other reason, though, that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is so fundamental, foundational to the Christian faith is that it is God's stamp of approval on everything that Jesus did to save us from our sins. His resurrection is proof that the blood he shed on the cross was effective, that it really worked to free us from the curse, from the punishment of our sin. And so Jesus showed himself for 40 days to his disciples and to his other followers as he was alive, risen from the dead, victorious over the grave. And the effect that had on them was that it comforted them. It gave them courage, conviction, confidence to go out into all the world with the message of Jesus' blood for the forgiveness of sins, his resurrection for victory over the grave. And Jesus' people today still need to see him as he is now, alive and victorious over death. See, in my office, there are a total of four crosses on the wall. They were all given to me by wonderful Christians at different times. I remember exactly who gave them to me and when and why. Two of the crosses are crucifixes, which means Jesus is still on the cross. Some people don't like crucifixes, but I do. I think they're good. Because Christians need to remember Jesus on the cross, shedding his blood to free us from our sins and love for us. Then you have two of the crosses that are just plain crosses, where Jesus is not there anymore. And I think those plain crosses are wonderful too, because Christians also need to remember and trust that yes, Jesus suffered and died on that cross, but he's not there anymore. On Good Friday, after he shed his blood for our sins, Two believers named Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, in love, they took Jesus down from that cross and they put him in a brand new fancy tomb that nobody had ever been laid in before. And then three days later, when a group of loving ladies went to that tomb to take care of Jesus' body, all they found inside was folded up grave clothes and an angel announcing to them that Jesus, who died on the cross on Good Friday, was now alive and victorious. His death on Good Friday, that was the victory over Satan and hell. His resurrection on Easter, that is his victory over death. And this is who Jesus is now. Alive, victorious, and reigning over all of our enemies. It is so important for Jesus' people to see him that way. That in the early years of the Christian church, before the word of God was complete, before the New Testament was completely recorded, even after Jesus ascended, he continued making these personal visits to his disciples and to his other followers to encourage them, to guide them, to remind them that he was alive and victorious. Now this book of Revelation is the very last piece of God's written word. And even as St. John, the last living apostle, is recording this revelation, the living Jesus, one more time, appears to St. John to show him who he really is, unmasked, alive and glorious and reigning over all of his enemies. And behind the mask of St. John's revelation of the written word, we see Jesus the same way. St. John was paying the price as he wrote his book of Revelation. He was paying the price from Jesus' ascension all the way up to that day John had spent his whole life preaching and teaching the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And unlike all of the other apostles, according to very reliable church history, they were all martyred 
They were all killed for their Christian faith. St. John is the only one who was not. He was the only living apostle left in the world. But he was still paying. They didn't kill him, but they exiled him to this very lonely, little, ugly, deserted island called Patmos, which is just to the west of what is today the nation of Turkey. St. John says he's there. He was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony about Jesus. So St. John was in a very bad place. He was alone and suffering because of what he believed and what he spoke about Jesus Christ. And he was not the only one in the early Christian church suffering for Jesus and his gospel. A lot of Christians were suffering for it. They were suffering from the outside. They were persecuted by their secular government, by the unbelievers in their culture. And a lot of what they were suffering was self-inflicted too. It came from inside the church, false teachings and heresies that were leading people astray and creating division. So they had all of these difficulties, all these pressures from the outside and the inside, threatening their physical lives, threatening their spiritual life. And you get a sense, if you read over the next couple of chapters in this book, you read these letters that Jesus dictates to these seven churches, you get a sense of just how much Christians were suffering, what they were going through for their faith. And St. John was suffering for it too. And can you imagine that he, he sat there on this lonely little crag called Patmos all by himself at the end of his life, 100-year-old man. So I believe in Jesus all this time. I do what he tells me to do, and this is how it ends. Can you imagine that his Easter joy was occasionally in short supply? That he didn't exactly feel the victory of Jesus' resurrection and his reign over death and hell? Was Jesus really victorious? Was he really still alive and with his people to help them and to take care of them? And so one more time, Jesus appears to this last living apostle to comfort him. But it's not just the comfort of St. John. It's for all of Jesus' people of all time who wrestle with those doubts. Jesus appears one more time for those seven churches in Asia Minor. You heard them listed in those seven cities. But Jesus is not just making this appearance for the seven churches in Asia Minor in 100 AD. It is for all of his churches, all Christian congregations of all time, to see Jesus here unmasked as he really is, alive, glorious, and reigning even over death and hell. Now when John has this vision, first he hears, and then he turns and he sees Seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like a son of man. He was clothed with a robe that reached to his feet. And around his chest he wore a gold sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool or like snow. His eyes were like blazing flames. His feet were like polished bronze being refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. He held seven stars in his right hand. A sharp, two-edged sword was coming out of his mouth. His face was shining as the sun shines in all its brightness. And I wonder, as I read the description of this vision, when St. John turned and looked at Jesus, did he even recognize at first who he was looking at? Does Jesus here look at all like the humble servant Jesus who walked with John and the other disciples from town to town in Israel? 
Does Jesus here look at all like the humble servant who knelt and washed his disciples' feet in the upper room? Does he look at all the way he looked on the cross, beaten and bloodied to a pulp? And St. John would know because he was the only disciple brave enough on Good Friday to stand beneath Jesus' cross and see him in that lowest state. John was one of the three disciples about 70 years earlier. He got to see another vision similar to this on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's another time when Jesus pulled down his mask just a little bit, and they got to see who he was as the Son of God. But this description here, this seems to go far beyond even what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration 70 years earlier. We're not going to spend a lot of time this morning getting into the principles of interpreting the visions in St. John's Revelation. We're not even going to get into all the details in this vision and what they all mean or what they could mean or what they might mean. But in order to secure the central point of this sermon, we do have to know, and we know this for sure because it is laid out explicitly later on, that these seven lampstands that Jesus is walking among they symbolize those seven congregations in Asia Minor, the original audience of this revelation of St. John. So when John sees Jesus walking among the lampstands, it tells his people in those congregations that Jesus is still right there with them. He is still among his people. Jesus is not in some remote, distant corner of the universe. He did not ascend to leave them and forget about them. Jesus is still right there with them. In the middle of those persecutions from the outside, in the middle of those self-inflicted wounds of heresy and false teaching and division from the inside, Jesus was right there with his people. Not to make their lives easier by taking those troubles away, but by strengthening them to bear those crosses. And what a vision of Jesus' power and glory to do exactly that for his people. The vision starts with a description of Jesus and a quote from him about himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and who was and who is coming, the Almighty. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He is the beginning and the end of everything. Because, as John says, he is the Lord God Almighty. Here is the most important thing, though, when you, when you think of Jesus as the beginning and end, the Alpha and the Omega, the most important thing that he begins and ends is your salvation. Because nobody else could have even started it. Nobody else can even begin the work of your salvation. Because in order to be saved, you have to have a holy substitute. You have to have someone who is perfect in your place, and no other human being could even pull that off. They couldn't even start because every other human being is sinful from the moment they come to life. You go back to Genesis 5, you see Adam's children after the fall, they are no longer born in the image of God. They're not born holy. They're born in the image of Adam. They're born sinful. Jesus is the only one who could even start your salvation because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He came as true God, born of the Virgin Mary. He started your salvation in perfection and carried it all the way through to the end, the sacrifice he made on the cross to free you from, his, from your sins, from his resurrection on Easter morning. And Jesus in this vision, he definitely looks the part of the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord God Almighty. 
the almighty and all-glorious Lord. It must have been a real struggle for St. John to get this down on parchment as he was watching it. Impossible without the Holy Spirit inspiring him and helping him along. Can you picture the trembling hands of a nearly 100-year-old man trying to write this down? Here is Jesus with the gleaming white, the fire, the glowing metal, all symbolizing his holiness and his power. Jesus is no longer the humble, suffering servant that he was during his ministry. He is the Lord God Almighty that he always was, but now humble no longer. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Now, even behind the mask of the written word, if you close your eyes and picture this vision, it's scary. It is a frightening, intimidating vision that John is seeing. And so he, he falls over. And you know, this is a pattern that you see throughout the Bible. Anytime that God pulls down his mask just a little bit, reveals just a little of his divine glory, you've got people falling over all over the place, falling down in fear, acting like dead people. And it doesn't even have to be God himself. Even if it's just one of his created messengers, just an angel, people can't handle it. They can't be in the presence of perfection, especially not in the presence of a holy God. But then suddenly, we see this scary-looking, frightening-looking, glorious Jesus speak and act like the Jesus we know from the Gospels. He placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and see, I am alive forever and ever. I also hold the keys of death and hell. Now can you hear in Jesus' voice there the same tone he must have used with Mary Magdalene outside his tomb on Easter morning? You remember Mary, she was afraid and confused. You know what had happened to Jesus' body, mistaking Jesus for the gardener until Jesus simply spoke her name. Or the voice Jesus must have used with Thomas when he appeared to him for the first time and, and gave Thomas the proof that his weak faith still needed. Or the tone he used with Peter when they ate a breakfast of fish on the seashore. Or whether it's Mary Magdalene or Thomas or John on the island of Patmos or any of those early Christians or any Christians today, Jesus' loving purpose is always the same. To see him for who he is now. No longer the humble servant who is suffering and dying for our sins, but alive, glorious, and reigning over all of our enemies. And to know that for us who believe in him and love him, this glory of our Savior Jesus, this victory is not something to be scared of. It is not something that is frightening to us. To his enemies it is, but not to us. Because he loves us and we love him. He died, rose, and lives for you because he loves you. And Jesus' people, from the time of John on Patmos and those seven Christian churches in Asia Minor all the way down to today, we need to see Jesus as he is because we struggle with our doubts too. We wonder sometimes, is Jesus still here? Is he still alive? Can he, is Jesus really going to use all of the troubles and challenges of my life for my eternal good. Is he really alive to give me 
everything I need and not to give me more than he and I can handle together? Is Jesus still here to give me power to overcome or escape absolutely any temptation that is thrown my way? Whenever we feel like Mary or Thomas or John on Patmos or any of those Christians in those seven churches, we need to see Jesus as he is and see him holding the keys to death and hell because his death and resurrection completely defeated both. And to remember why he did that, why he won that victory, it is because he loves us with an eternal love. And to see our Jesus walking still among his lampstands, all his saints in all of his churches, yes, seven churches in Asia Minor in 100 AD, but all the way down to Trinity Lutheran in Woodbridge in 2023 AD. We need to see Jesus as he is because he never promised an easy road for his people in this world. Exactly the opposite. He promised crosses like persecutions and divisions and false teachings. So we need to see Jesus as he is. Our hearts may waver. But he is ever caring, ever loving, alive, glorious, and reigning. Amen.